3: I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people are my friends. I'm just trying to make some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. You might not notice from the averages Dow gaining a exorbitant 278 points it has climbing 0.82%, and NASDAQ advancing 0.55%. But the Delta variant has us on the run. And today the markets seem to get what we're dealing with, which is a much more hazardous situation than we thought a month ago. I know the averages are up, but bear with me because that's why. See, whether it's unvaccinated kids giving their parents breakthrough COVID infections or the 22% of vaccinated people who are asymptomatic spreaders or the morons refuse to get their shots, we have a truly horrifying development. We had 85,000 new infections yesterday, much worse than where we were in the spring of last year. Sure, the death rate's still low, but those numbers will likely go higher over the next couple of weeks. In terms of the stock market, the relentless spread of the Delta variant has reached a tipping point. Now, on a tipping point, managers don't run. No, what do they do? They take aggressive action to, in, to really to in, ensure a worst-case COVID scenario is embedded in their portfolio. The money managers I talk to, they're calling it the second great pandemic. Now, I'm not going to litigate whether or not these moves are correct. Maybe we're rapidly headed toward herd immunity so everybody who hasn't been vaccinated could quickly get immunity by being infected. And that has been my thesis. What matters is that there's tons of uncertainty. Is the government right to bring back mask mandates? How high, how, how high are the students to, to student infection rates? We don't have them Do I have to ask people to show me their clear symbol at the door of Bar San Miguel? My small plate Mexican restaurant in Brooklyn. Oh, that's a that's appetizing. Is it up to me or will some level of government make the decision for me? Can somebody help us? The truth is, I can't answer most of these questions, but I can tell you exactly what the big institutional money managers are buying as they try to find ways to play the Delta variant. And they do. They play the Delta variant. Yep, the spring 2020 game plan, I dusted it off for COVID outbreaks, and it started working today. Okay, it's an extensive list. I don't care. The new stocks that are on fire because of the new rules that make you feel like we're headed back into lockdown, even as we know we're really not. But it worked for us back then. It's going to work again. With everyone in the federal government to the CDC on down saying it's going to get worse before it gets better. Well, I got to. I got a going to get worse before it gets better. Portfolio. Let's start with the retailers. We need to reactivate. Watch. That's my acronym for Walmart, Amazon, Target, Costco, Home Depot, the the major essential retailers that made out like bandits during the original lockdown. Wall Street seems to believe that once again, whatever's left of the independent retailers will finally be crushed by this new outbreak. And only the big ones can survive. Target's been the strongest. It has a great back to school numbers. You can't go wrong simply buying the stock of Target in August because it's the place to shop for everything from school supplies to cozies, uh, sports team uniforms. Brian Cornell will be on our network tomorrow at three. I always love it when Brian's on. We got two guys from, uh, uh, from Queens on National. We got Faber on Jeopardy and we got uh, Cornell on our network. Home Depot is all about that pesky home office that needs to be built or expanding now that the white collar workers aren't going back to work in person anytime soon. Costco feels like it's already up a lot, even though the stocks only rallied 15 percent year to date. We know Costco made a fortune during the first lockdown. It should do well in a pseudo lockdown scenario. Notice pseudo. I don't think we're going to lock down. If you take it away and says, oh, Kramer's going to lock down, that's just your. Well, let's just say you're a Twitter follower. I like Walmart because its stock is painfully flat for the year we own it for the charitable trust, which you can follow along by joining the Action Alerts Plus.com club. I think Walmart's poor performance has to do with the company's inability to compete with Amazon at the highest omnichannel level. Delivery! But that could change at any time. That's why I like the underdog in this dogfight. We'll find out more when Walmart reports in two weeks. Stock started to break out today. Then there's Amazon. Oh, boy, which is only up 3% for the year after last week's drubbing. I think what happens if you buy it, you'll be on tenterhooks the whole time if you own Amazon, at least until the next quarter. Well, Amazon is an obvious winner from a pseudo lockdown, there are easier ways to play. It. You want to bargain? I don't know if you called, but we recently spoke to Carol Tomei. She's the CEO of UPS, not long after her stock got obliterated, because when the company reported, her commentary in the future was extremely cautious. She made it clear to us that UPS would have a hard time duplicating the kind of numbers we saw last year which was mostly spent in lockdown. But now lots of money managers have visions of pseudo lockdowns dancing in their heads. And that means UPS has a chance to mount a comeback. Let's throw in FedEx for good measure. Actually, right now, FedEx is doing better than UPS. Many of the apparel plays should be able to make a similar comeback. That means you can buy Nike uh, right now, even here, because no one asked them about human rights in uh, in China on their conference call about 30 points ago when a lot of short sellers figured someone's got to bring it up. You can go own Lululemon for comfortable workout clothes that you can wear when you're stuck at home. You can check out all this fabulous casual wear from Ralph Lauren that's selling out right now. That sucks is beginning to take off in response to the hybrid workplace siren. I love those numbers. I was very impressed by Ralph Lauren's quarter. Looks like they have the fullest catalog for people who want to order their merchandise directly rather than buy it from a department store, although I will get purple label at the department store. What else? Domino's became the dominant restaurant chain during lockdown. It has its own best of breed delivery system that doesn't crush profitability. Lately, the stock's been soaring because they continue to put up incredible numbers even during the great reopening. Domino's wins either way, but they might win more in the pseudo lockdown scenario that potentially forces more of their competitors out of business. Then there's Apple. People forget Apple did incredibly well at the height of COVID. We're talking about uh, buying now, pay later with a firm today, but that's not what's really going on here. It's this. It, it did that because the remote work has given them a backdoor into the lucrative enterprise hardware business. See, for ages, Apple computers have been far more popular with consumers than with corporations. Most businesses run on Windows or maybe Linux, rarely Mac, with the exception of some niche industries. People think Apple's too expensive. But with the people who run companies. But with people working from home on their own machines, they force corporate IT departments to learn how Apple systems work. No more shoulder shrugs with a brusque, hey, we don't support that. Sorry. I am so sick of the We don't support that. Support what I want. I work hard. There. I said it. All right. This is huge as the enterprise market is much more valuable than the consumer market. Finally, I have a new one. Robinhood markets, OK? Now, this is the Robinhood that, Je- that uh, David Faber did not mean last night when he said money goes to Robinhood. That was the foundation. Last night, I pounded the table on this one. Oh, my. Did I take heat on this? I said you had to buy Robinhood. Yes, the broken down stock because that business captures the current zeitgeist and it could even get better if they try to branch out by acquiring a company in that rapidly growing buy now, pay later space like a firm that Goldman might be teamed with. I thought the stock deserved a rally. Now, I had many doubters on Twitter, of course, which is just impossible to read. But I never expected to surge 24 percent in a single session. Now that the idea is out there, the, the ubiquitous short sellers will be wearing this one. Wall Street a trade going wrong. I think they were shorting it already. You can't do that at the beginning. It's tough to get a borrow. I am a believer in Robin Hood. I am. I still like the stock even up here, although obviously it's less attractive at just under 47 than it was in the morning at 37. I know, Robin, it's not of the highest quality, but I endorse the stock less for what it is now than for what it can become. And that's why it roared today. Here's the bottom line. As the Delta variant keeps spreading like wildfire, state governments uh, bring back some of the COVID restrictions all over the country. I bet these pseudo lockdown stocks will be big winners. Of course, if somebody comes up with a cure for COVID overnight, that could destroy the thesis. But then again. Even if we had a cure, I bet 50 million Americans would refuse to take it, just like they refused to elect immunity. Daniel in New York. Daniel. Booyah. Oh, How are you, Jim? I am good, Daniel. How about you? I'm doing well. So I've recently opened a position in Six Flags, ticker SIX, and given the potential for the COVID variant to spread rapidly, I'm wondering if you think the stock to buy, hold, or sell. I'm going to be honest. No. I don't want to own it right here. I mean, they're scaring the living daylights out of us. When they're telling us in New York that we got to start tell, tell, asking people, "Where's your cards?" I know that we're in a situation where there are going to be people who say, "I'm not going to Six Flags." If they're going to ask me whether I'm healthy or sick, to hell with them. A very odd and counterintuitive way to approach this. I'm going to call it rather than suboptimal, puzzling. Unfortunately, the surgeon in the Delta variant has us on the run. It really does everywhere. But as always, I got a playbook for any market environment, and I don't care. These stocks right here are the ones you need to own when we start talking lockup, even though I am telling you right now, there will be no lockup. These are just big winners from the playbook, the pandemic playbook, because this, my friends, is pandemic number two. Oh Mad Money tonight, every day was deals in July as the market finally succumbed to some IPO fatigue. I'm taking a closer look at the newly minted names and sharing what to make of the recent action. You won't like it. Then, despite Delta variant concerns, the market continues to cruise higher. But are we nearing the top of the major averages? Okay, I'm going off the charts. Look, I'm usually bullish. Come on, give me a break. And Clark sold off hard today, after a weekly expected quarter. So what can we make of that one? I'm going to go straight to the source and talk to the CEO. So stay with Kramer.
1: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag mad tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 cnbc. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact
4: Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact.
0: Visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
3: What worries me most about this market, it's not the Delta variant, although I'm not crazy about that, or the Chinese government's return to Marxist Leninism, which is a bit worrisome, or even the possibility of a debt ceiling crisis, which will dominate the headlines. Nope, it's the fact that we've been flooded with IPOs to a truly insane degree. Remember, like I always tell you, the stock market is first and foremost a market. In any market, prices are controlled by supply and demand. You dump in a bunch of new supply, prices tend to go down. So when we get tons and tons and tons of initial public offerings, that puts pressure on everything. And lately, we've had a ridiculous number of deals. So far this year, there have been 304 traditional IPOs that have collectively raised $105 billion. Historically speaking, that puts 2021 on par, get this, with previous peak IPO years like 1999, 2000, 2014. And we still got five months left. Now, that doesn't even count the 388 SPAC offerings that have raised more than $116 billion. A lot of that money idle, looking for something. The flood of new issues has only gotten worse. Last month alone, there were 73 deals. In the last three weeks of July, we had more than 20 deals per week. Yep, we've been averaging four IPOs a day. But this is too much supply for the market to process. There's just not enough money out there. Last week alone, three companies postponed their offerings, citing adverse conditions. And many of the deals that did make it through the IPO window performed poorly. Remember, this is when the market's at all-time highs. That's very worrisome. In other words, we've got a bad case of IPO fatigue. Now, I've told you that the deals won't stop until buyers stop paying up for this stuff. It looks like we are rapidly approaching that point. It's always, always a moment of truth for the market. When Wall Street gets IPO fatigue, investors lose their appetite for low-quality merchandise. Now, you can see this most obviously in the Chinese deals, or rather, the total lack of Chinese deals. I warn you for ages, these, uh, these will underperform, or at least tend to, uh, are the American IPOs, and you never know when China's government crackdown on a particular business will happen making, you know, for making too much money. Uh, nobody wants to hear that. That'll change with DD Global. The Chinese Uber that came to the public at the end of June and then got booted from every app store in the People's Republic a few days later, crushing the investors who were uh, who participated in the deal. Ever since the Didi debacle, there's only been a single Chinese IPO here, Tiny Company, too Small mention on air. There. there was another deal scheduled for last week, but it got shelved. Then last Friday, SEC Chairman Gary Gensler effectively put the kibosh on Chinese deals when he announced a series of new disclosures they'll have to make before they list their stocks here. I think he made the right call. He's trying to prevent another Didi. He's doing some very good things right now. Beyond the disappearance of Chinese deals, there's less and less appetite for IPOs of any stripe. When you look at all the stocks that came public this year, only 51 percent were above their offering price as of last night's close. That's terrible. Getting in on the actual offering is supposed to be a sweet deal. The underwriters work very hard to ensure that stocks go up right out of the gate. Normally, the odds are stacked heavily in your favor, but not when there's IPO fatigue. When there's IPO fatigue, you end up with a situation like this where it's basically become a coin toss. I don't like coin tosses. And, hey, of course, Wall Street's losing its appetite for new deals. In the first first five months of the year, we were getting 1.4 to 1.9 new IPOs per trading day. Then in June, that jumped to 2.6 IPOs per day. In July, it spiked to 3.5% IPOs. And over the last couple weeks, it's been four. That is absolutely nuts. Four IPOs per day? When the IP market gets too crowded, everyone loses. As of last night's close, the average July IPO is still up 9.5% from its offering price, which might seem pretty good. However, when you measure from the first trade, more accurate, right, because most people can't get in on the offering, roughly 56% of these July IPOs have lost your money. On average, they're down nearly 6% from the opening on their first day. That's dismal. When you break them down by week, you can see how this IPO fatigue has crept up on us. In the final week of June, which included the first few days of July, you could already feel some strain. This was the week of the Didi deal, although it didn't melt down until the week after. Krispy Kreme also came public with a deal pricing well below its proposed range. And while it was able to mount a rally on its first day, the stock quickly broke down. It's now below the IPO price. More typically, though, you get deals like Dmarket, the self-proclaimed Amazon of Turkey, which came public at 12, jumped to 13. Not that much there. On the first full week of July, we got lots of little deals that are too small to talk about on air, but there's a weird pattern that's worth mentioning. A few of these stocks soared right out of the gate, but since then they've given up all of their gains. Even when the brokers managed to push something higher, there is no follow through. Second full week of July, you had some big deals that either lost you money or basically done nothing. There's uh, Stefanato, the Italian supplier of medical equipment like vials and syringes. Uh, price at 21, opened at 16 and change. Ouch! You had a real estate investment trust focused on supermarket anchor properties, Phillips Edison, came public at 28, barely budge. Or how about a Membership Collective Group, parent company of the trendy Soho house chain, private clubs? Price at 14, finished the day at 12.66. Hmm, still stuck in the low teens. Hey, then there's F45 training, uh, where buyers are investing alongside Marky Mark Wahlberg. That deal price is 16 It's now fifteen thirty nine, down a few nickels and dimes from where we recommended for speculation. Not looking good. But it was the third full week of July, the week before last, where things really got crazy. We got 21 deals, and many of them were actually good, including Ryan Specialty Group Holdings, a broker for the insurance industry, Core and Maine, a drainage and fire protection play, and Paycor, a banking software company. But even these games were muted. Plus, there were signs of strain near the end of the week. Many, many more losers that Thursday and Friday. Finally, last week, the IPO fatigue hit hard. We had 20 deals, exactly half of them finished their first day of trading either at or below their offering price. That is terrible. Probably would have been even more than half if three deals hadn't been pulled. There were still some nice winners, Duolingo, the popular language learning app, but the losers were far more noteworthy. Look at it this way. Last week, Robinhood, the great democratizer of the stock market, came public with a whimper. The deal sure looked like a dud, even though I am a fan of Robinhood and the stock has come roaring back. Monster 24% move today. We pushed it hard last night to you. Opened nowhere. You could have bought it. But when a massively hyped stock has had such a weak debut, it shows you got the IPO market in a very tired fashion. Bottom line, all these new deals are bad news for the averages. Too much supply weighing us down. But at least the pace is finally slowing now that we're in August and the worst IPOs are getting pulled. Because the underwriters know they just can't keep jamming our throats down with all this junk. They should be ashamed. Stick with Kramer.
1: Going, going
3: and gone.
1: As the major indices continue to notch new highs, should investors be concerned about an impending top? Kramer's investigating the recent action and going off the charts to see what the patterns are signaling next.
2: You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, The ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.
0: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing
5: of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash business gold card.
3: Oh, you're going to like this piece. I talked about it on Twitter. The market keeps hanging in here, right? But even though earnings season has been pretty darn good, I think there's a lot to worry about right now. Between the Delta variant that I talked about at the top of the show, sweeping across the country, we had 85,000 new cases yesterday, and the sold-out debt ceiling negotiations, and the fact that the Chinese government keeps finding new industries to destroy, I think we've got plenty of reasons to be concerned. All right. Last night, We highlighted some of the chart work from the legendary Larry Williams, who told us that the S&P 500 usually gets hammered in August and explained why this year should be no different. Tonight, I want to consult the only other technician in the same league as Larry. And his name is Tom DeMarc, the pioneering head of DeMarc Analytics, with a storied history of timing the markets going back for decades, from the days when I was a hedge fund manager, even longer. Now, this man has a tremendous track record when it comes to spotting tops and bottoms, not just in stocks, but also in cryptocurrencies. Now, DeMarc nailed the meltdown in February of last year. He nailed the bottom roughly a month later. He called the pullback in late October, as well as with the election day bottom. So what does he think about DeMarc? Right now, you got to give him some props and chops because of what he said. Well, you know, this man's got a host of proprietary indicators, unemotional indicators, and they've been positive on stocks since the big bottom in March of last year when DeMarc made a truly legendary call to buy. For months, though, he's been watching and waiting, watching and waiting for signs of a peak, but he's got a strict methodology. To DeMarc and his team, it's not a real top unless the averages hit his price target models right as his timing countdown fires off a sell signal. So there's a couple of, process, couple of pieces involved. And if you need to know more, may I suggest you go to his website, which is S-Symbolic, and that's S-Y-M-B-O-L-I-K, Symbolik, And that powers his charts and it gives you a real good sense of if you missed some of this or trying to understand it better. So far, DeMarc's models for time and price just haven't coincided. So rather than a major top leading to a brutal decline, we kind of get these garden variety pullbacks, maybe five to 10 percent or less. And then the rally gets going again. But now it's different. Now DeMarc's timing and price models are finally in alignment. And he thinks we could soon see a significant top in both the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq 100. Somewhat similar to what Larry Williams would say. I want you to start here. This is a daily chart of the S&P. You can see that when the S&P approaches DeMarc's price targets, it tends to sell off. <laughs> Pretty obvious, right? Uh, and that's exactly what's happened in early September and mid-February. However, he also has a thing called a 13-session countdown pattern that tells him when a rally is likely to run out of steam. We never got to 13 in September, okay? We never got to 13 in February. As a result of the declines from muted. Hey, by the way, something happened in June. DeMarc warned us that a major sell-off could be on the way. Market mellowed down hard a week later, but then it came right back because we didn't have the makings of a real peak. DeMarc thinks this time is indeed different. The s 500 blew through his price target at 4.426, and his 13-day sell countdown is currently on day 12. This pattern says it's time to sell when it gets to 13. So what we're doing, obviously, I'm trying to give this ahead of time. I'm not trying to give you after. So where do we go from here? Simple. The S&P needs to make one more higher high, meaning it needs to go above 4430 in this case, up only seven points from here. That could be done. It needs to open above today's close. It needs to make a higher low than last Thursday. I know these are very complicated series of circumstances, but you know Thursday's closing high of 4419, that could easily happen tomorrow if the S&P rallies oh so slightly in the morning. As it has lately, if you notice at 9:30 a quarter of 10, and then it hangs in there for the rest of the day. So that is a very threatening pattern, and I want you to notice it. Tomorrow's day 13 It's pretty pretty much of a pivotal session. We're not done. It's not just the S&P 500. Now I'm going to have you take a look at the QQQ, the ETF that mirrors the NASDAQ 100, which contains the 100 largest non-financial stocks in the NASDAQ composite. This tech heavy index blew through Mark's price target last week, and it's also on day 12 of his 13 day sell countdown. That countdown will go to 13 and fire off a sell signal in the moment. Here we go. The QQQ closes above 369 up only a few points from here, so we're really close. If the S&P and the Nasdaq 100 both give you these sell signals at roughly the same time, DeMar thinks it could get real ugly. I don't know anyone's thinking this. It's the first time this has been a real possibility since the bottom in March of last year. Of course, if he's wrong, there's a chance the S&P and Nasdaq could both give you a quick two- or three-day rally in a good news environment. But right now, DeMar thinks a meaningful top is far more likely. Remember, these are percentage games. All right, how about the Dow? This one's really intriguing. Ever since late last year, DeMarc points out that the Dow's traded erratically. Yes. In a pattern that he finds eerily similar to, to early 1929, in the months leading up to the Great Crash, he calls it the seven-megaphone pattern. Okay? Because it looks like a megaphone, and it's got seven stages. We've seen a series of higher highs coupled with lower lows. You could say the Dow's been turning and turning in a widening gyre, um, If you want to p- Put a little poetry to it. That patterns resolved itself with a big breakout to the upside, which again is really similar. Yes. To the big rally in 1929 before the peak. All right. Let's take a look at it. In 1929, Mark notes, that was the seven step pattern. And after the final step, the Dow Jones collapsed under its own weight. He's not saying we're in for another crash year, but the Dow's currently in step seven of this pattern. Once that current rally runs out of steam, he does expect to see a significant sell off. Not at of this magnitude. That was extraordinary. Beyond the stock market, DeMarc's also concerned, of all things, crypto. Now, I want you to look at the daily chart of Bitcoin. DeMarc's models have been incredibly accurate when it comes to crypto. I really loved it, possibly because there are no fundamentals here, which means, well, the charts are much more important. We got a completed 13-day sell-off, uh, sell countdown in April, all right, right before Bitcoin got cut in half. Then we got a 13-day buy countdown last month, right before uh, things bottomed. But in this is a huge button, DeMarc's short-term indicators didn't confirm that bottom. So it's, to him, a questionable one, even though Bitcoin's made a substantial move off that low. There's another reason why he doesn't trust last month's lows for crypto. Normally bottoms happen when on bad news, not good news. Securities finally bottom when all the weak-handed traders capitulate and dump their positions. I always talk about that. However, when Bitcoin found its floor last month just under 30,000, how did it do? Well, we didn't get any bad news. On the contrary, Tesla's Elon Musk, Twitter's Jack Dorsey, and ARK Invest's Kathy Wood were all promotional speakers at a major crypto event that weekend. For DeMarc, that makes the recent run in Bitcoin feel less like a meaningful bottom, more like a temporary shortcoming rally. Meanwhile, both Bitcoin and Ethereum have recorded what DeMarc calls nine setups, which are typically associated with interim highs. Sure enough, we got a major crypto breakdown today, and it's possible this is just the beginning of a larger decline. So I know I threw a lot at you, but this is the bottom line. The charts as interpreted by the legendary Tom DeMarc suggest the market's getting close to a top, especially the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq 100. He's not too keen on the Dow Jones Industrial Average either. And if you were thinking of hiding your assets in Bitcoin while stocks roll over, DeMarc says, think again. Daniel in California. Daniel. Booyah, Dim. Booyah, Daniel. I've been watching the major cryptocurrency prices seemingly bottom and begin to steam back. Is now a good time to get in on Coinbase, ticker C-O-I-N? Go, birds. Go, birds. We've got a uh, training camp started already. OK, look, I don't want I want to kind of steer clear of crypto right now in any form. Just because I want to be sure uh, that Tom DeMark's work doesn't, uh, uh, let's say, come true, because that would mean that Bitcoin's uh, too high and everything associated with it's too high. Sam in Colorado, Sam. Hi, Jim. Hi, Sam. Following Tesla's release of their quarter two 2021 financial results, the streets should be aware of the absolutely stunning results. Not only did Tesla beat on the top and bottom line, they actually expanded their profit margin. Unlike many other hydro companies in this market, Tesla is able to increase their revenue while bringing down the cost of revenue. And as a result, Tesla is both paying off debt and financing new factories in Berlin and Texas. Now, compare these stunning financial results with older automotive manufacturers, Ford and GM. Mm -hmm. It is clear Tesla has got the technological and financial advantage. So why would anybody want to own? Well, because the technological advantage may not be as great as we think right now. Now we're starting to get real competition. I know people don't believe Ford, Okay, I believe in Jim Farley. I think there's going to be a lot of companies that are coming after them. They're very well financed. But I like Tesla stock. I'm just saying that it's not going to react the way the old buoyant way. It's going to be a bit more of a slog from now on. All right. The market keeps hanging here. I know. But the charts suggest that the S&P 500 and NASDAQ 100 could be approaching a significant top. Same with Bitcoin. So proceed with caution. Be ready to act when the rally finally runs out of steam, if it does. Now, much more mad money had. You know, I like to do all, uh, on the charts on Thursday and I've got it off the charts Thursday. These are for lack of a better term, awful. And I'm concerned because they are so awful. After reporting weaker than expected earnings, how is Clorox down so badly today, worse since 1999, prepared to deal with rising commodity costs, supply chain constraints, and all sorts of other issues? I've got an exclusive with the CEO. Then PepsiCo announced today is selling off Tropicana, my favorite juice, in a multi billion dollar deal, proving that they're not afraid to shake things up. What other companies are willing to make bold changes to unlock value? I'm going to reveal some names to keep on your radar and all your calls. Rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. This is important. How worried should we be about Clorox? This morning, iconic consumer products company reported a truly ugly quarter. And the stock plunged nearly 10 percent today, raising nearly all of its gains since the beginning of the pandemic. And one time it was down more than any time since 1999. We knew Clark's would have a rough quarter this time. They were up against some very tough comparisons because during the same period last year, the demand for cleaning products was off the charts. But we didn't know they'd post a massive top and bottom line miss. Organic sales down 10 percent year over year, earnings down more than 60 percent, gross margins shrinking by 970 basis points. Worst management gave you a door outlook for the full fiscal year, talking about further margin erosion and a mid-single-digit sales decline, I saw little reason to buy the stock. It's not just difficult comparisons. Corks is getting squeezed by higher raw material costs, higher logistics costs, higher manufacturing costs. Apparently, inflation is giving them a tough time. That's rough. Still, the stock erased some of its losses after the conference call. So maybe it's found a floor. That's what I want to know. Maybe not. That's why we need to take a closer look with Linda Rendell, the CEO of Corox, who we commend for coming on the show in good times and bad. Ms. Rendell, welcome back to Mad Money.
5: Thanks, Jim, for having me back.
3: Okay, so Linda, I'm going to go to what you said in midway through your conference call, and your question to uh, uh, Wendy Nicholson. You said, "What we're seeing, absolutely an extraordinary environment. I hate to serve a little bit, but it's really the perfect storm." Describe what the perfect storm means to our viewers.
5: Yeah, you know. I think we should start with Q4. It's a great place to start and put those results in perspective and then talk about what we're seeing in the cost environment. First, if you look at Q4, we were lapping 22% sales growth in the year-ago quarter, and we did expect um, sales to moderate in our cleaning business, which it did, but to a greater degree than we expected, although it's significantly above where it was pre-pandemic. The rest of our businesses largely delivered what we expected them to. I think what's important, Jim, is taking a longer view, not just looking at the quarter, but the year. And all four of our segments delivered sales growth in the year. And if you look even further at a two-year stack, each one of our segments delivered double-digit sales growth in that time period. So if you think about the impact the pandemic has had, our brands have performed incredibly well during that time. And we believe we're emerging as a much stronger company than we were pre-pandemic. Um, and looking at those two-year stack results really put it in perspective. Right, but what I you would... highlighted is... Absolutely, an unprecedented cost environment. And we're seeing that flow through in what happened in quarter four in the front half as we lapped 27% sales growth. And we're taking aggressive actions to manage that over the coming six months.
3: Uh, like we said, but I do want to go back over about uh, where you thought people were and where the street was. Morgan Stanley, uh, quick comment large fourth quarter earnings per share miss. Guidance well below consensus. Jeffries, guidance worse than feared. J.P. Morgan worse than feared. Barclays, worse than feared. These are not the stuff of we thought it was going to be bad. These are people who have been serious analysts. You and I both know them for many, many years. They feel bagged. What do we say to them?
5: Yeah, what we say is this is a short-term, you know, unpredictable environment. And although we did our best to guess where we thought we'd land in the quarter, things are changing daily with the consumer and how they behave. The macro environment is changing. Certainly, COVID is changing, as we've watched, unfortunately, what's happening with Delta. And although we're providing the best visibility to we have at that, it is continuing to be volatile. So we did miss. But I think the important point, Jim, is if you look at the fundamentals of our business, our brands have never been stronger. We're investing in those brands and we're investing for the long term. And we have every confidence that we'll continue to increase and accelerate the profitable growth of the company over the long term.
3: So if you you look at your Mosaic, your pastiche of businesses, you do not agree with Morgan Stanley. who says that this quarter calls into question the degree of strength of Clorox's underlying businesses. You think that's just man is just not there. Got it wrong.
5: Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I look at two year stacks all in the double digits across every segment. We have our highest superior consumer value rating that we ever have. Our household penetration is strong. Our repeat rates have increased. Our market shares are growing in seven out of nine businesses, and we continue to expand those leads. Our business is fundamentally healthy with the consumer. And most importantly, Jim, exposed to greater tailwinds as we move forward. Health, wellness, and hygiene is not going away. The consumption of our cleaning business, for example, is 25% higher than it was pre-pandemic. People are doing more things to take care of themselves. They're drinking more water. They're staying at home more given the fact that there's hybrid work. Our portfolio will benefit from that, and we are fully ready to take advantage of that in the future. What we need to get through is this next six months. We're taking all of the necessary actions when it comes to cost savings, pricing to deal with margin, but we're continuing to invest in our brands. And what we see in the back half of our year is returning to the low end of our sales and algorithm um, and beginning to expand gross margin in Q4.
3: All right. Well, look, one of the things that I, I had always felt that your company was well ahead was in uh, e-commerce. But you committed a huge amount of money, a, a large, unexpected $500 million investments over the next years for digital uh, capabilities. Was I wrong in your company's strength in digital?
5: Absolutely, you are correct. Uh, we led the way in digital marketing and e-commerce, and that has resulted in having our business uh, nearly double in e-commerce over the last two years to 13 percent. And we've learned through those digital investments that we have an opportunity to digitize the rest of Clorox. And this investment is not about the short term. This investment is about having a stronger company moving forward, not just in the strategy period, but well beyond that. And we're taking um, the time to do that. We believe so deeply in what we can deliver from a sales result perspective and profitable growth. And we're taking the opportunity to double down on that with this investment.
3: Well, I admire your conviction. I have to believe that one of those lines of business that you have, I'm not going to call any particular one, maybe just uh, a line too far. I I found my conviction was somewhat shattered today, Linda, and I want to believe I like the yield. I like what you've done. I like the fact that the company's got some fantastic brands. But then I say to myself, "Okay, uh, something has gone awry here that you and I, Linda, we have to be uh, puzzled. We have to be puzzled by the so-called algorithm, puzzled by why the, that some of these brands, w- which I don't expect to have weakness, uh, uh, Hidden Valley Ranch, uh, Gladbags, uh, Kingsford. We're all going outside. Uh, the the, the Burt's Bees, uh, the only one that really surprised me on the upside was the supplements, which I, which I know you've gotten right after a tremendous amount of work.
5: Yeah, and Jim, I think, again, we have to look at the longer run on this. If you look at a quarter, you're going to say that about those businesses. Right. But if you look at Kingsford, we are back in the 70% share range on that business. We've grown tremendously double digits every single quarter during the pandemic. This is lapping incredible growth and still elevated versus pre-pandemic levels. Hidden Valley Ranch has grown share 23 out of 24 quarters, and we continue to deliver strong results on that business. So this is not a fundamental problem with our brands. This is a matter of lapping an incredible impact to our company And we are taking the environment very seriously and, again, taking those necessary actions. And you're going to see us emerge even stronger coming out of this in the back half. of this situation. can you
3: stand there and buy as much stock as you want with a 3 percent yield, a good balance sheet?
5: Hey, you know, we're always prepared to put um, our money to work for shareholders as we have over this last year. And we're always evaluating that. We have a very strong cash position and we'll continue to ensure that we balance that. Um, And as you know, we've been deeply committed to the dividend for many years, and and we'll continue that focus.
3: Well, look, I want to believe uh, your company's in the penalty box. Uh, Not you, your company. Nobody wants that. Uh, We all want to see Clorox as strong as we've learned for many, many years when it was in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. We've been with you the whole way. It is vital that this next quarter come through. And then I think that people will say, why did not buy Clorox? Linda Randall, CEO, Clorox Company. Thank you so much for coming on Mad Monday. Thanks so much, Jim. Yeah, money's packed, gift and break.
1: Stick around.
3: May I make a suggestion? I would stay with him.
1: The lightning round is coming up next.
3: It is time. It's over the lightning round. What's up, bro? What's up, bro? What's up, bro? What's up, bro? And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski, dad. The lightning one? is over. With Rob, Rob.
5: Hey, Jim. Uh, first time, long time. First time, long time. Uh, action Alerts member here. Love the move yes. you guys made in the portfolio today.
3: Thank you but for joining. Yeah, we had some good ones. Thank you. Thank you for being a member yeah, of the you club. you did. Thank you. All right. My question is on MKSI. I need your help. I don't understand why the stock is so cheap. It is exactly the sweet spot of semiconductors. I think it is a Bye bye bye! I gotta do a piece on it. This thing is really good. We need to go to Ruda in Florida. Ruda!
5: Hi Jim. I'm a first-time caller, but Excellent. a longtime follower. There you go. And thank you so much for everything you do for the little guy.
3: We are that's who we are. We're little guys. Let's do it.
0: <laughs> I'd like to know your thoughts on my stock, A-U-P-H.
3: The I- immunosuppressant, they should be doing better. I mean, that's an unbelievable market. I'm wondering whether they have anything proprietary or not. I want to be careful about that stock. Let's go to Steve in California. Steve! Oh, yeah, Jimmy chilled. And what better place to chill than San Diego? All right. A good segue to a local biotech that you're very familiar with, Sorrento Therapeutic. Well, I'd rather chill, frankly, in Sorrento, which is a beautiful town, by the way, not far from where my wife. Well, let's put it this way. I think Sorrento is overvalued. I don't like the way they have handled themselves, and I am in the sell, sell, sell when it comes to Sorrento. I need to go to Quarry in New Jersey. Quarry.
2: How you doing, Jim? Thanks for taking my call. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, my largest... My largest position in my portfolio is Palantir. My question to you is what's your opinion on the company and do you see potential for exponential growth in the future?
3: Okay, Palantir is a cold stock. Uh, the Colt can take it up to 28 if it wants to. When I say a cold stock, there are people who don't really know what Palantir does, but they own Palantir. My style is to know what they do and then own it. I don't know what Palantir does because it's a secret, but people still like it. Let's go to Kevin in Texas. Kevin. Hey, Jim, I wanted to get your current take on GRTF Ripstone Bio. Yeah, tumors. If you want to shoot tumors, you want to own Novacure. Novacure is the way to go. Not that one. And you know Brad in, in uh, New York. Brad. Hi, Jim. I Thank you for taking my call. Of course. Booyah. Booyah. I've learned many, uh, I've learned many things watching Mad Money, thank and you. I thank you. Thank you. My question. You're welcome. My question is about SoFi. I bought the list uh, I, back. I don't understand why the stock's where it is. I think that Anthony Noto doing a terrific job. I get $15, you buy the stock. I just think you just go buy it. I need Craig in California. Craig!
2: Hey, Jim. Uh, big, sunny Northern California booyah to you. Thanks Thank for you. taking my call. Thank you. Hey, uh,. Last week, Boeing uh, provided us all with a nice little upside surprise. I wonder wondering what you're thinking about some of their suppliers,
0: namely SPR. Spirit well, if you're going to do
3: suppliers, you got to do GE, you got to do Raytheon. I prefer to actually own Boeing, which was down at one point, hanging by a friend, as my friend, my help, Matt Horowitz said, and reversed. I think Boeing's the one to buy. And that, ladies and gentlemen, of the Lightning Round!
1: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. <laughs> they say if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So why might some companies revamp their beloved brands? Kramer's highlighting consumer staple stocks that are shaking up their brand portfolios for the better. And what the innovation could mean for shareholders.
4: Next.
3: Good companies are risk averse. They rarely change beyond doing a small acquisition here or there. bolt on. But great companies don't hesitate to shake things up. Look at PepsiCo. Today, we found that they're selling Tropicana and Naked Beverages for $3.3 billion to some French private equity firm. When I first saw the news, i got to admit I was kind of dumbfounded. Tropicana is a storied brand, lots of aisle space in every supermarket, spawned by endless pulp, no pulp, some pulp iteratives. Perhaps that's why PepsiCo is keeping a 39% stake in the newly formed enterprise. I was dubious about this deal, but my ears perked up when I spoke to the very smart CFO, Hugh Johnson, about the decision. He first told me that the Tropicana brand had fallen a bit out of style. There was a moment of hilarity when he asked me if I knew anyone who still starts the day with a glass of Tropicana. I said, every day, I never miss. However, I quickly followed that up with a recognition that there is a huge amount of sugar in every bottle of orange or grapefruit juice. You don't want to lose. You can't lose weight with this stuff. People don't like sugar these days, and if they have to get some in the morning, they often want it in the form of energy drinks like Rockstar or Mountain Dew Rise, which happens to be my favorite. I cannot get enough of this one because it's got few calories and all the caffeine of two cups of coffee. Hey, listen, I do a 4 a.m. workout. Give me a break. PepsiCo really knows the secret. It isn't just to reshuffle the portfolio. It's to do big things. Now, lots of companies know how to do little things. I mean, like Kraft, Heinz, Kellogg, what sets PepsiCo apart is it knows how to innovate and do big things. It's got drinks that are much healthier for young consumers who keep buying the same stuff for the rest of their lives if PepsiCo nattles nat- nat- them earlier. Or, of course, it's got, drugs, it's got drinks like this that, to me, well, let's just say they send you through the moon. Now, I may be obsessed with Tropicana, but that addiction is dying out in the rest of society. It doesn't fit into the new world of Rockstar or Soda Street. PepsiCo needs to cut loose its slower brands because it's got a roadmap for plus 5% growth. If they're going to hit that target, Tropicana no longer belongs under the same roof, even though it's only a couple of three bill. While Pepsi can innovate with Mountain Dew, there's not much they can do with orange juice. So it's gone. And that's how you become a shareholder friendly company with a nearly 3% yield and steady eddy growth, which, by the way, is what we wanted from Clorox. We want some bold actions, but some companies Well, let's say they're not afraid to shake it up. Who else is pruning, buying, growing brands? They aren't easy to find, even though many companies claim they do this. I like McCormick, the spice maker, which has been very aggressive in its acquisitions, allowing them to generate 9.5 percent net growth with the stock that's given you a four bagger of the last decade. I like Hormel. Yeah, that stock's almost given you a, a four bagger in the last decade, too, by change, change, change. And then there's Constellation Brands, STZ, the beer, wine, and liquor company. Over the past five years, it's had an astounding 17% growth rate, the stock has gone from 19 to 221 in the last decade. Constellation's secret, a willingness to aggressively reshuffle its portfolio. They made out like bandits when the Justice Department forced the combined anheuser Bush InBev to sell the American rights to Corona and Modelo for just $4.75 billion back in 2013. Now, you could say they got lucky, but Constellation's doing a much better job with Corona and Modelo than the previous owners did. And yeah, they, they make mistakes. Ballast point was a mistake. They, they own the mistakes. These companies don't get stuck in a rut because they never stop transforming themselves, both through innovation and by reshuffling the brands and, yes, admitting mistakes. And that's why I love those stocks. i like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. And I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money.
5: I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow.